Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as always. And John, are you tired of winning yet? <laughs> Not this week. Boy. <laughs> wow. All right. So we have a terrific victory to uh, to bring to the audience. I, I feel like we should maybe replace John Mellencamp there at the top of the of the segment with some sort of uh, appropriate victory uh, music. I, I don't know what that would be, but uh, we may have to I, I explore that. I believe the Yankees uh, have have all those tunes from the 70s. Uh, as, as a lifetime Royals fan, we will not be using any Yankee music. I, I uh, this uh, Among the few things John and I disagree about is baseball allegiances. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, notwithstanding that, uh, we, have a, we have a terrific victory out of the Third Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. The case is Federalist Media LLC, the National Labor Relations Board. And this is the case, you, you may recall, where uh, an employee of Federalist tweeted on his personal Twitter account uh, after the employees of Vox Media walked out. Uh, he decided that, that he was bemused by this and decided to tweet out on his personal Twitter, first one of you uh, at Federalist employees who tries this, I'll send you back uh, to the salt mines. And so uh, the employees thought this was funny. There was some banter back and forth. And a random interloper labor attorney from Massachusetts files an unfair labor practice charge against Federalist Media with the NLRB in New York. Uh, So the labor lawyers in Massachusetts, the NLRB and Federalist Media are in D.C. And this gets filed in New York and brought uh, in New York. So a few different a few different claims that we had been making. And, And John, by the way had been mocked mercilessly by attorneys on the left for bringing this case, saying that we had no chance of victory. And I didn't, I didn't tee those up today, but uh, there was a good article in Jacobin that was, that was poking fun at this case, a couple of other, a couple of other sources. You, you mean to tell me people who willingly call themselves Jacobins were wrong about something? <laughs> you make a good point, but uh, these, uh, uh, you know, this, this was not viewed as a slam dunk case for some reason. We thought from the get-go that uh, we had multiple good arguments against uh, what transpired here. First of all, we thought that there was a good personal jurisdiction argument that this case needed to be brought somewhere uh, where there were minimum contacts with Federalist Media. And that would that would be potentially Delaware, where the company is incorporated, or D.C., where the company is headquartered, but not in New York City, uh, which is not where the tweet originated, and it's not where any of these other activities took place. Well, the uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals did not agree uh, with us on that. We had lost that in front of the ALJ, needless to say, and in front of the, the NLRB board itself. But that was one of the issues we were appealing up uh, to the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit uh, did not agree. It, it said that the district courts are different than 
than uh, agencies in terms of the personal jurisdiction inquiry and that it's a it's a due process uh, inquiry that's different from the minimum contacts test. Now, I happen to think, John, that when when this personal jurisdiction issue gets up to the Supreme Court in another case, it won't get up in this case unless the uh, NLRB uh, appeals this result, which we can talk about later. Uh, but I, I think that that the that the watershed revolution in personal jurisdiction over the last decade, led by none other than the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, should have ramifications for where agency actions can be brought as well. It can't be the case that an agency, just because it has national jurisdiction over a topic, can haul you anywhere in the country uh, in order to to bring charges against you. And that, that may be what Judge Hardiman, who was the circuit judge who wrote the majority opinion here, would say is, well, we're not saying they can bring you anywhere. We're saying that you have to make a due process showing that you were prejudiced by where the agency chose to bring it. And you didn't show that New York was sufficiently prejudicial to your interests in order to, to create a problem. Okay, well, let's leave, let's leave that one there for now. The second issue uh, that, uh, that existed in this case was a subject matter jurisdiction issue. And that's whether or not the statute and the regulation uh, comported with each other. The statute refers to an aggrieved person filing an unfair labor practice charge, and the regulation says any person can file can file the charge. Well, the, we lost that issue in front of the ALJ and in front of the board. We were appealing that up to the Third Circuit. And, and actually, one thing I should point out, uh, John, about the personal jurisdiction inquiry, New York is not in the Third Circuit. This case was appealed from New York to the Third Circuit, which covers Delaware, uh, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. The reason we appealed it to the Third Circuit is because uh, our client is headquartered in Delaware. And the fact that, that the Third Circuit accepted jurisdiction in this case, I think, is important because it shows that even if an agency does try to haul you somewhere else, it can't, uh, it can't essentially, by doing that, in, uh, pick what set of uh, of precedents would apply. They couldn't but force also, Second Circuit precedent to apply instead of Third Circuit precedent. Also, the statute does say that the party hurt by the administrative agency can bring the action, you know, appeal the action to some place where they reside. Right, but they don't reside in New York. This guy was in Massachusetts. Right, right. I know that. I, but that's, yeah. that's why we were able to bring it there. Uh, uh, oh, right. I see what you're saying. I see. Right. We couldn't have picked somewhere random, but we right. could pick the Third Circuit. Right, right. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, so appealed this to the to the Third Circuit properly. I think it's significant that the Third Circuit uh, agreed that this appeal there was 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 proper. Uh, but the subject matter jurisdiction question is is uh, again back to the statutory interpretation question. The Third Circuit was not persuaded uh, by our our view here and and said that that the uh, it viewed the aggrieved person language to only apply to a a small subsection of the. Uh, you know, having to do with whether or not there's a uh, a delay in when you can bring the the charge and so forth, and that uh, even though the precedent that it was relying on for this predated the amendment to the statute that brought this new aggrieved person language into effect, there were subsequent Third Circuit cases that cited the Supreme Court uh, prior opinion, and therefore that was that was pretty much enough for. Uh, for the court here to decide that the subject matter jurisdiction uh, was was not a problem uh, for the agency. And it, it I'd say, John, kind of went out of its way to say that, look, 
you may not like it, but the statute says any person can bring a charge, and that includes a busybody uh, just as much as someone well, agrees. Right. Well, the tone of the thing is, look, I don't like this law, but I'm going to enforce this law, and our precedent does lean that way. But I think the hint throughout this thing is if you go up to the Supremes, they could really whack you because I, I can't is kind of what the majority is saying, I think. Um, yeah, I think I think that's fair. And and I think I think they're also there's another thing going on here, which is they say that they needed to have people who weren't in the company um, bring charges because labor relations were so bad in the 20s and 30s that you could get hurt or fired or beat up. You know, that the the milieu from which all this emerged was a, a labor a, a labor capital uh, fight that that is that was much more uh, sh sharp and violent than I think what we have today. I mean, especially with tech workers working outside the home, outside an office or a, or a place. I mean, or, some or of this journalists, historical... or journalists, yeah, or journalists, from home. exactly. So, <laughs> so, so some of this was done. Apparently, according to this majority, the reason they allowed this uh, uh, is so that you could do it anon, so that somebody who who the employer couldn't hurt could make the could make the claim, and so they couldn't fire somebody you know who was in there was in their uh, factory. But I, I, that certainly is not this case. It's not. And, and I think that you can reconcile those precedents that the Third Circuit mentioned here, because it's true that those folks weren't employees bringing the charges. They weren't necessarily unions. But in, in every case, they were someone with privity to the situation. It wasn't like it was a complete random outside person bringing the charge in any one of those uh, cases that the Third Circuit relies on. So I, I think that there's maybe play in the joints there, or there's certainly room to read the precedents and maybe we'll get to the concurrence uh, here in the next in the next segment. Uh, but before we do that, let me uh, let me talk about the victory part because, as I said, this was a great victory. And the third issue in this case was the First Amendment issue, uh, where uh, I think it's fair to say that the that the Third Circuit trounced the NLRB's uh, version of of what happened here and and its uh, uh, its failure to abide by uh, the First Amendment. And in other words, it told the NLRB that it couldn't take a joke and that you have to look at the totality of the circumstances. And for the agency to, to look at this tweet, which was pure speech, there was no labor antagonism history here. There were no other actions that accompanied the speech. For it to go and look at this pure speech out of context and say that no reasonable person could construe this as anything other than a threat was just wrong. And so even though it said that it, it, it would ordinarily need to defer to the agency's uh, you know, views in this case here, it was sort of so wrong. And so uh, it, it failed to even analyze the context in which the tweet occurred, that it was going to to overturn that. And I, I think that's right, John, I think that there's uh, the First Amendment protects uh, humor. And it's, it's not the case that just because somebody laughs, you're okay. And, and you're, you know, something that would un be otherwise be an unfair labor practice uh, is no longer uh, unfair. But here, the board really, I mean, it ignored the the affidavits of the employees, which said that they didn't construe it as a threat. And the Third Circuit said, well, the board was within its its right to to discard those affidavits. But when it did so, it ignored a bunch of context that it wasn't necessarily allowed to to ignore in reaching the conclusion uh, that it reached. So I think that that there were uh, you know many important factors here pointing to the idea that this truly was a joke. You didn't have to work very hard to figure out that it was a joke 
or that nobody was threatened by it. And you can't have a situation where the the employer makes a joke, the employees think it's funny and it's a joke, and then some random interloper, and the Third Circuit says this, because a random interloper came in with no context and didn't think it was funny, that's not enough to make an unfair labor practice charge. We'll be back more to talk about the concurrence right after this. Welcome back. And we're still uh, discussing Federalist Media LLC, the National Labor Relations Board. And you can find it on our website. Uh, you can just go to the website and look up Federalist and, and it'll be right there at ncla.legal.org. Um, and uh, I think also, Mark, that um, the, the lawyers on this, Kara Rollins and um, and Jared McLean, we should mention that is this, we didn't, we, we didn't, uh, we're not a, you're on the briefs, but I'm not yeah. on the briefs. Right, so, right. It was they they did most of the hard work here, along with uh with Adi Dinar, who uh, actually yeah. originated the case, but wasn't with us by the time it made it up to the Third Circuit. I think I think that's right. And uh, I also want to give a shout out to uh, the folks who put in uh, amicus briefs. Kimberly, our friend Kimberly Herman over at Southeastern Legal. Um, yeah, she represented the employees in the case. Yeah, and Cato with uh, Tom Berry. Uh, Trevor Burris and Ilya Shapiro, um, and I think I think Tech Freedom did too. Yeah, Corbin Corbin Bartold, Corbin Bartold. Uh-huh. and and uh, Institute Speech Alan Gura. Um, wow, we certainly we certainly got a lot of these. Uh, let's see, Jonathan Goldstein over at uh, the Council for Am- National Federation of Independent Businesses. So, um, yep. and Civic Legal, Civic Legal Foundation. Yep. And uh, let's see. And then, and no, no amicuses for the NLRB. So anyway, <laughs> no one came down on the uh, on the side of anti First Amendment. How, uh, yeah, that? wow, that was quite the lineup. I I had I had thought there were three or four. I didn't know there's that many. And that that was that's really something. And I think it does show this. And and I Kara told me something which I think goes to your first point, which was that the reason that everyone made fun of us is they were all NLRB lawyers who, who don't get out. You know, they, they didn't understand that there's other, there's other people in the world who this is going to seem crazy to. It can't just be a joke. It's gotta be, it's gotta be something up. There's gotta be a plus there. There's gotta be some action that you then do that makes it not so funny. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just, they think they, you know, they're, they're labor lawyers and they think they can do this to anybody. And, uh, and that it's somehow different from constitutional law, but constitutional law is everywhere. So what I want to talk about, though, um, well, and, and is, can I just say that the, the yeah. Judge Hardiman said that the tweet suggestion that these employees might be sent back to work in a salt mine is farcical. The image evoked that of writers tapping away on laptops and dimly lit mine shafts alongside salt deposits and workers swinging pickaxes is as bizarre as it is comical. You know, that's I, I, that's how the rest of us see it. Well, I also I don't have it. I don't have it, but he said that Twitter is designed to be snarky. That there's something about the there's something about the the way it works that that 
that elicits snark. I forget the exact line, but it was pretty good. I I, I recommend the reading it to everybody though. It's it's a fun opinion, and also fun is Judge Matei's concurring. He concurs in the judgment. Um, he says, yeah, of course, this violates the First Amendment, and you can't. And, in it, he says, in its haste to join the tedious chorus of disapproval against whatever disfavored view has most recently appeared somewhere on the internet, the board shelved serious supervision of the protections for America's employees. Rightly, the majority concludes the board's efforts to restrict speech cannot be squared with what the founders recognized as an inalienable natural right to express one's thoughts, sometimes described as the freedom of opinion. So, um, but then he goes on. So he joins that holding in in full so there's no there's no dissent this is a concurrence but he then looks deeply at the precedent because what he disagrees with is what mark was talking about which is whether or not you have to be aggrieved and he thinks you do have to be aggrieved he doesn't think the officious intermeddler has to can do this and he doesn't think that the precedent of the third circuit and the supreme court really binds them to this and and, and so he he uh, looked at our briefs and he he brought he he bought this entirely um he thought it was a good argument and he urged the court to say look you can't have people who have no no dog in the fight uh causing these problems um and so he he does you know we begin our inquiry with the text which is which is always uh you know, a good sign that they're not that that when that you're not too tied by the precedent that you're going to go back to what people actually wrote. Um, and then he talks about the history of the the National Labor's Relation Act. Uh, he goes back to 1935 when it was first passed, and that was what I was talking about earlier. Is that you know it was it was a a time of both labor surplus and and you know extreme. Uh, Violence of most people were, you know, not in farm work, were factory workers. There was, they weren't remote workers. And in fact, the NLRB doesn't like remote workers. There's a constant push and pull about whether or not you can work from home. Uh, they're not, they're not for it because they think bad things happen at home, I guess. Um, but anyway, uh, the NLRB and the majority contend the new words person aggrieved thereby make no difference and that now as the, as then anyone can file a charge he says traditional tools of statutory interpretation show otherwise and what he's talking about is that change in the law he says when they changed when they added those words and changed the law even on the timing issue um that changed who could do this and so that it it modifies the whole thing and he, what he says is, look, you've got to, you've got to interpret this whole statute in consistently. Um, and he quotes Scalia and Garner, who, who uh, talk about how you inter interpret um, statutes. And so he, he, he really believes that that change in law took away this ability, and he thinks they should say so. Um, and so he he doesn't really buy that it's just a, a matter of of who can bring it in six months. That's basically where he differs. Um, and and, 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 and by the way, kudos to to Jared after the oral argument. He this is what he predicted, right? He said, "Well, we're going to win, but I don't know." Or maybe it was Kara. Uh, we're going to win. Oh. I don't know which way because I think Judge Hardiman bought the First Amendment argument, and I think Judge Matei bought the 
uh, about the jurisdiction <laughs> argument. So I don't know how we're going to win, but we're going to win. And uh, that's right. We won and we got two votes on or we got three votes on the First Amendment, but but didn't get to, didn't get two votes on the jurisdiction question. I think that's right. And and I think that um, I also thought that was what was interesting here um, is that he then talks about the proper place for case law. So because he says, look, I think these, this statute is now clear that it, that it, it's not anybody. And then he, he gives um, he says the NRB and the majority heavily weigh prior judicial interpretations of Section 160B. Ordinarily, that is the proper course. But here, case law avoids rather than answers the interpretive question presented. What is the best meaning of Section 160B following the 1947 amendments? As that question has not been addressed, we should follow the language of Congress, not the courts. So he doesn't believe it's been squarely addressed. The majority said, you know, we think it has. And I think what really drove the majority here is that the subsequent Supreme Court uh, rulings that didn't discuss this fairly. I think Judge Matei is right about that. It, they didn't squarely meet it. But since the Supreme Court had approved of their prior decisions, I think they felt that 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 was enough. Um, and I think that's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting difference. Th this is not some kind of ideological difference. No, really. it's not. It's not. But we've said in many cases, John, that cases do not stand for propositions that were not squarely addressed in the case. So I, I, I felt like they went a little too far in, in feeling constrained by by precedent right. here. Not, I, I, you know, I don't know that that they had to follow uh, the way that Judge Matei said, and that's interesting. There's a Chevron footnote in the. I was about opinion. to get that. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Tell them about that. Well, I was just going to say that even if we even if we agreed that uh, that the interpretation could go the other way, we would defer to the agency's interpretation here under Chevron. So Chevron rears its ugly head uh, again. And, and by the way, I found that that passage you were talking about it said it describes Twitter as a public platform that limits tweets to 280 characters, which encourages users to express opinions in exaggerated or sarcastic terms. <laughs> so. Exactly. And, but Judge Matei has a slightly different take on Chevron. He, he in, in, in footnote eight, he says, Federalist notes that the Chevron deference is constitutionally sus suspect, a practice that requires courts to bow to the nation's most powerful litigant, the government, for no reason other than that it is the government. And then, then that suspicion is decreased with a searching application of the statutory text, after which the court will almost always reach a conclusion about the best interpretation, leaving no need to adopt or defer to agencies' contrary interpretation. And he quotes Kavanaugh concurring in Kaiser. In other words, the interpretation requirement of Chevron taken seriously means the courts will have no reason or basis to put a thumb on the scale in favor of an agency, also quoting Kavanaugh from Kaiser. And then he also... Uh, quote Scalia dissenting in Pauli v. Beth Energy. And I find it interesting he found a Scalia because he's obviously a Chevron guy. Chevron is a recognition that the ambiguities in statutes are to be resolved by the agencies charged with implementing them, not a declaration that when statutory construction becomes difficult, we will throw up our hands and let regulatory agencies do it for us. So what they're, what, what they're all saying is, hey, we're we're not going against Chevron, but we should almost never use it. Uh, I, I guess it's like it's like a nuclear weapon. <laughs> you, 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 you can Except have in this case, it doesn't have a deterrent effect. It has a it has a background encouraging the agency to be promiscuous effect. I think that's right. I think that's right. 
So, um, and, and so he concludes, if we needed to reach whether Dominic's words constituted an unfair labor practice, the majority's reasoned holding is correct, but we need not because the best reading of the NLRA trims the NLRB's jurisdiction and prevents unaffiliated parties from searching the internet for wisecracks to transform it into workplace violations that unleash the NLRB's sweeping power. Precedent does not require today's jurisdictional holding and the NLRA's text marshals against it. For those reasons, I respectfully concur only in the judgment. So um, that's why I, I think this is even a, a it's, it's nice to win on the First Amendment issue, always, but it's also nice to get a concurrence saying, hey, we should go farther. So anyway, great win, and congratulations, and thanks again to all the lawyers for helping.